Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. John O'Leary nearly died at age nine. He was playing in his garage in St. Louis when he accidentally set off a fiery explosion. He was left with third-degree burns covering almost his entire body. It was a long, painful recovery. He even had to have his fingers amputated. O'Leary recounted the story of his near death and ultimate survival in his book On Fire. It became a huge bestseller. And now John O'Leary is back with another book. It's called In Awe. Read discover your childlike wonder to unleash inspiration, meaning, and joy. And he's with us today to discuss how to do just that. So, John O'Leary, welcome to the show. Hey, Sarah. Glad to be back. So, your new book suggests we'd all be happier if we reclaimed the ability to look at the world the way a child does. What do you mean by that? Well, this book, it's important to say, was written before a global pandemic, before (laughs) a global recession, before everything we're talking about, your previous guests shared so beautifully on. But even when the world was in a different place, there was so much anxiety, there was so much depression, there was so much isolation, actually, Sarah, that we as adults were dealing with. And I would walk out of these rooms where I would speak in front of these large organizations and uh, senior level leaders and step on the road, at least for fun, into schools. And I would speak to these kids and they were so engaged. Every time I would ask a question, all their hands would go up. They did something very unusual. They would smile all the time. (laughs) They had this raw, ferocious optimism for life. And I wondered as I was getting ready to write this book, what is it that children have that we lose sight of? Why does that happen and how to return to it? And so that was the genesis of the book in awe. And so as you talk about in this book, um, that excitement and those smiles, those go away so quickly. Most people, by the time they're in middle school, they're already sitting on their hands. They're refusing to answer questions. They won't even make eye contact. Uh, What happens? It's it's a complicated uh, answer to a very beautiful, simple question. But in short, it's this. Our mind begins to change. We can't do much about that. But we also change the way that we move forward. We, as little ones, believe that everything is possible. We raise our hand to every single question. And we not only want to answer questions, Sarah, we want to ask our own questions. But asking the question why or why not or what if or who cares enough times, we're told by those in front of us to stop asking questions, that there's only one answer, that that it's B or it's C or it's D, it's true or it's false. And so we get a little bit less creative, a little bit less curious in asking the questions around life. And part of the idea behind the book In Awe is to encourage people to become childlike in the way they see what's in front of them and ask questions around what's possible. So we're talking to John O'Leary. He's a St. Louis guy. Um, His previous book was a bestseller. It was called On Fire. And it told this amazing story about his own childhood um, and how he'd managed to battle his way back from some really tough things. Um, This new book here, it's called In Awe. um, And he's talking about rediscovering our childlike wonder and unleashing inspiration and meaning and joy. And, you know, like his other book, it's just, it's a really good read. Um, He has this way of sort of relating things that happen in his life and um, making them make sense in a way that um, even if you're sort of, um, you're emotionally blocked, you don't want to deal with, um, you know, these self-help books or these books that are there to sort of provide motivation. He's got a way that he can figure out how to do that. Um, and so this book, In Awe, is quite good. Um, 
And we're actually going to, um, we're sort of pausing here because we're having some trouble with his phone line. We're going to get him back here um, and reconnect with him. I'm hoping just in a few minutes here. And in the meantime, uh, we do have a quick reminder. We've got our St. Louis on the Air Facebook group, and that's a great place to connect with us. You can find out uh, what we're working on. We'll often ask for your ideas for questions ahead of time. Um, And so what you want to do is go to our Facebook page, search for St. Louis on the Air there. You can request to join it. We try to answer those very quickly. And then we draw from your ideas both on this show in real time and also leading up to these segments. Um, So we highly recommend you do that. You can also find us on Twitter. That's at STL on air. Um, And I understand that John O'Leary is back with us. John, how are you sounding right now? Sarah, it it takes more than a pandemic to keep you and me from connecting on NPR. So I'm glad we figured (laughs) out... Plan B that might work. And I will say your voice sounds great. Not that you didn't sound good before, but I'm now approaching your voice with wonder. <laughs> well, that's the idea. So I'm, I'm glad you are. So look, before we got, uh, before everyone had to listen to that very long, boring monologue from me while we were getting you back on the line, <laughs> you were talking about just the importance of um, approaching life like a child does. And I find myself wondering if part of the problem is our schools, that we need kids to be a little more docile. We can't have them be quite so excited. And, and that also translates to the workplace. We just can't have people bouncing off the walls. You know, your assumption's accurate, although I think our teachers are some of the most heroic people we have in our entire community. So I, I don't want to put any of the blame in front of them or the parents or the guardians or the grandparents. But the reality is that kids are highly engaged when they're younger. And when we are told that we were wrong, enough times we begin to believe that that might be right, that it's better to sit back and say nothing than to risk be wrong and be pointed out for being the failure that we've been told that we are. And so, children, you know, back in 1963, I think it was uh, maybe September 12th, Kennedy had this wild idea of going to the moon and back, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. <laughs> it is, it's one of the finest speeches ever given. But it's important to recognize that so much of that ambitious desire, the technologies that we needed to have to get us to the moon and back had not even been invented. And so what what we need, not only in our school systems, not only during a pandemic, not only during this recession and everything else going on professionally, corporately, and individually, are these wild ambitions of what might be possible going forward in our lives. But also no holds barred. We come in, I think, into situations frequently believing that we already have have limitations, that the ceiling is already determined. Mm-hmm. And what children do is they have no expectations of that. There is no ceiling to their life. They go through each day with wildlike joy and optimism and awe. We call it first-time living. And so, Sarah, I think the more we can experience our days like children again, the more we can get more out of the days we experience. So you had a chapter um, on that subject that I found so persuasive. You were talking about your so- your son's strong desire to catch a baseball at a Major League <laughs> Baseball game. Um, you ended up quoting Emerson, shallow men believe in luck, believe in circumstances. Strong men believe in cause and effect. How does that play into the fact that your son ended up catching two different baseballs at Major League Baseball games when I personally have never caught one. Well, and I've been to a lot of games as well. I've never caught one either. And there's probably some mitigating reasons for that. I, I lost my fingers to the amputation as a child. So that's an excuse, but it is the truth. Yeah. So he, he, here's the idea. We call that in, in the book expectancy. 
So what you think might happen actually has a far likelihood of indeed happening. In pharmaceuticals, they refer to this as the placebo effect, Hmm. that when we give a patient a prescription, whether it's a sugar pill or it's in fact the actual pill itself, in both cases, very frequently, we will see an increase in how the patient recovers and how they advance forward and how they achieve some semblance of health. If you think it will happen, it begins to happen. It's not enough just to shut your eyes and and imagine, but it also changes the way you think, the way you dream, the way you pray, the way you work. And in Patrick O'Leary's case, the way you bring a baseball glove to a stadium, the way you sit on every single pitch, the way when others are looking down at their hot dog or looking over uh, to the section to their left or the right, my son with his glove on his left hand is watching every single pitch. And so I believe it's part of the reason why Now, three consecutive road trips with his dad, Patrick O'Leary has returned to the foul ball. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really feeling convicted here because for all the grousing I've done about not catching one, I don't take my glove to the baseball stadium. And how can you get in the game if you're not carrying that? How do you find that principle translating into everyday life when we're looking for something bigger than getting that baseball? Well, it's a great question. I I believe the way we start our day will impact the, the day itself. And most of us, when we wake up in the morning, we're already a little behind schedule. Most of us wake up in the morning, we grab our phone, we look at the headlines, we realize, oh, gosh, it's bad and it's getting worse. And then we start running after that day. What I would encourage your listeners to do and what I try to model myself is to wake up before I have to. I get up before the sun is up. I go down to our screen porch, make a cup of coffee on the way out there. And then I look east, Sarah. And I wait for it. And what I'm waiting for is the sunrise. And it happens every single day. Kind of missed the mark a little bit today because of the overcast. Mm -hmm. But every single day we have the opportunity, if we choose to see it, to watch light cut through the darkness again. And, And for me, it makes sure that the day starts off on the right foot. While that sun continues to rise to the east, I make a list of things I'm grateful for. Not all the things I don't, not all the challenges that are in front of me, not everything that's wrong in the world and in my world. But I begin my day reflectively and prayerfully every morning with gratitude. And that's a really cool way to make sure that we not only expect something more out of the day, but we recognize how good it already is. Hmm. I feel like we could all learn from that practice. Um, But one of the other chapters in the book that that was so persuasive to me is one where we can learn from something where you screwed up. Hearing about you rising before dawn, it's easy to think, hey, this guy's just better than me. I'm going to keep sleeping while he's sitting out there watching the sunrise. But um, you did have something that, that you felt like you really messed up, and that is you've spoken a lot about how you felt that Jack Buck saved your life back when you were yeah. a little kid. You know, he he sent you 60 different baseballs so you could learn how to use a pen again. And he visited you multiple times. And as you acknowledge in this book, you never visited him when he was sick. It's one of the hardest things to share. And when you write a book, you try to decide how much is too much and what's appropriate. And there's a guy named Henry Nowen who is a phenomenal author. And he says what is most personal and sacred is also most universal. Mm-hmm. So the very things that you think will set you apart and make it make people want to run away from you, like, oh, how could John do that, are in fact the very things that make people connect with you, your heart, because it connects with them in their story and in their heart. So after some tugging and pulling on this, I decided, man, I'm just going to share this. And what the share was was not only what Jack Buck did, and we could spend three hours on, on your program talking about the great Jack Buck, what he did generally and what he did for me. But we could spend the next 30 seconds or so talking about why I decided not to give back to him. And here's what it is. As he was near the end of his life, this man who had Parkinson's disease, like my dad has, 
like a gentleman who, who had cancer and was slowly dying. He spent the last five months of his life in hospital, mm-hmm. which is the exact same amount of time, Sarah, that I spent in hospital when I was a little boy. Wow. So wow. here's an opportunity for me to finally do the right thing, to show up for this guy who showed up for me every single day when I was a kid and for the decade and a half that followed. And yet John O'Leary at age 23 and then 24 did not once go down to the hospital to visit his friend Jack Buck. It, the natural question is, why, mm-hmm. man? What is wrong with you? And, and for me, there, there's a lot there. But for me, it, it was the sense that I was never worthy of receiving what he'd given me in the first place. Hmm. I was never worthy of it. I, I never understood why a, a famous, wonderful guy like Jack would want to become friends with a little boy like John O'Leary. Why, why this man who was on top of the world would reach down so frequently to a guy who felt buried by it and felt so insignificant. So during this time of his time in hospital, sir, I, I did not once go down and visit my friend Jack Bucket. It, it broke my heart back then going through that process, but it really broke my heart the day that my mom called and said, your friend Jack Buck passed away last night. Mm-hmm. And yet even then, as you write in this book, you didn't go to his funeral. Well, the, the truth is I went to the funeral. I put on my most expensive $39 uh, suit and tie <laughs> and shirt and hopped into my old beat-down car and drove out to this beautiful church in St. Louis County. And as I'm fixing my tie in the mirror, I looked to my left and I saw Dan Deardorff. And then I looked behind me and I saw the ownership team for the St. Louis Cardinals. And as I started looking around the parking lot, I saw the who's who of St. Louis and beyond, ball players and Hall of Famers and managers. And I saw everybody who I wasn't. I saw these people who fit in. I saw people who probably showed up for Jack, not only during his life, but certainly during the end of his life. And then I looked in the mirror again, and I saw this 24-year-old guy who was just a fake and didn't belong still. And I made another painful, poor decision to turn my car back on, back out of the parking lot, and drive away. And I get emotional recounting this, even with you on the phone right now, because it's just such a lousy move. Like, how do, how do you do this? How do you not show up for him? How do you not visit? How do you not call and write and tell him you love him? And then how do you still not show up for him in his funeral? You're already there, man. Just walk in. And I chose not to. And I made it about three miles down the road and just started weeping. And it, it, mm. it was the ugly kind of cry, Sarah, where I had to pull the car over and use the left sleeve and then my right sleeve. And about an hour later, the funeral's over. But I realized, man, I'm not going to live my life anymore less than I actually am. I, I can allow this thing to beat me down of who I wasn't and what a lousy friend I was, or, or I can allow it to become like a redemptive moment. And so that day, actually, that moment, I got, I turned my car back on. I drove to my grandma and grandpa's house for the first time, just stopped by, and I said, hey, guys, I wanted you to know how much I looked up to you, how much I respect you, what incredible grandparents you are. And we had a two-and-a-half-hour lunch. I should have been at Jack Buck's funeral. But I'm hanging out with my grandma and grandpa, explaining to them what heroes they are to me. Then the following day, I went out to dinner with my mom and my dad. I'd never taken them out to dinner before. And I probably never really told them all that they had done for me when I was a kid, how Mm -hmm. grateful I was for the five months they were with me every day in hospital, and for the years they spent being my champion and and the years that followed. And I thanked them for that. I told them I loved them. I became a hospital chaplain, sir. I I'd never spent any time in the hospital after I got out because I never, (laughs) once you get out of a burn care, five months, you lose your fingers, you go back for physical physical therapy. Your desire is not to one day go back into a hospital. It is to never go back. And so I went 15 years without going to a hospital. And then I realized as I was growing through my life after losing my friend Jack Buck that where he changed my life was in hospital. 
And maybe that's where I'm called to make a difference. And so I spent three years at Cardinal Glennon. One of your earlier callers, callers was from, from Glennon. Uh, the honor of spending three years with these kids and just being their friend and wearing masks and loving them where they are. And <laughs> that was cool. And, and that changed, an it changed so much for you. I mean, as you say, you still have some shame about that moment. But it, it sounds like Jack Buck would be smiling down from heaven knowing that that final screw up on your part of not being able to walk into the funeral, it led to such big change in your life. And, and I imagine based on the timeline, it was just a couple years from that that you ended up going into speaking and, and telling these stories. Was that really the catalyst? And there, there's no way whatsoever I could have gone into speaking had that not happened. Because the reality is you, you can't possibly tell people to love themselves, love their life, love their scars, if you don't personally love your life and your challenges and your scars. Hmm. And so what began that redemptive healing process was losing my friends, not being there for him, re- recognizing that there is another way to live your life. And it's a way different than the one you've been living previously, which allowed me to look in the mirror differently, see the scars differently. And then years later, when three Girl Scouts in St. Louis County asked me to speak to their troop, I was able to say yes and then say yes again. And in the last 16 years, we've said yes more than 2,000 times and spoken in front of a couple million people. It's an amazing story. And, you know, it's just so great to hear how your career has taken off as a speaker and and now as an author. Um, In our last couple minutes here, though, I have to ask you, um, as you mentioned, you wrote this book before the coronavirus. And so it was fascinating to hear you quote from some of these public opinion surveys. Um, One point you write, more than half of all Americans polled feel that the United States is at the lowest point they can remember in history. And again, you're writing this before we're in this pandemic about these times that we now look back on as, oh, those were the good old carefree days. Do you think there's maybe a a moral to that story, that all this doom and gloom we were feeling before this could maybe put some things in perspective for us? Yes. And and just to be clear, that that's not only under this administration, even the previous one. So it's Mm -hmm. not a political issue anymore. It's a societal issue of us believing that the worst days are upon us and the best days are behind us. And that's something that is leading to all kinds of public health issues, in in my opinion. So, yes, uh, there's a movie called Groundhog Day, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time (laughs) telling you to watch Groundhog Day. But in short, Bill Murray, he's the weatherman, Phil Connors, he decides that he repeats this day again and again and again and again. At first, it's driving him crazy. But then he realizes maybe this is an opportunity to learn how to become a better version of myself. And so he learns how how to speak French. And he learns how to play the piano. And he learns how to ballroom dance. And he learns when a kid is going to fall from a tree so he can be there to catch him. And he learns when a guy's going to get sick in a restaurant so he can save his life. He uses this day to become a far better version of himself, not only for him, but for the people around him. And my hope and my prayer is that we can use this time in crisis, during a pandemic, during all the challenges that we face individually and collectively, to come through the storm. The storm will pass. But my hope is as it passes, we wake up from where we were, where we are, into a much better position of where we can go next together. And just I want to call this out because I love the organization. Big Brothers Big Sisters Mm. is a a board member there. I'm an active big there. And we gave away 100 percent of the profits for the first week and a half of book sales of In Awe to Big Brothers Big Sisters because they are living this every day, not only for the littles that they serve, but for the bigs that they match. And that's, I mean, that's just so great to hear. And and here is this opportunity that that we can all do better. And I think anybody reading this book is going to come away convinced that they can do it, whether or not we're all up at the sunrise. Um, You have given us a model here we can follow. So, John O'Leary, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. 
Sarah, thanks for uh, reaching out and thanks for reconnecting with me once we lost signal. That's right. We did not give up. So, And just a reminder, John's new book that's called In Awe, Rediscover Your Childlike Wonder to Unleash Inspiration, Meaning, and Joy. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.